Olympic medalist and Tour de France podium finisher, Coach Bobby Julik, and Outskirts visionary, Gus Morton, invite you to put your socks on. Winning and losing, training and racing, pro, not pro. All of it comes down to understanding what works and what doesn't. From insightful analysis into our sport's most iconic races and racers to entertaining, educational, and actionable advice, Fizzo is an illuminating deep dive into the art and science of bike racing. Be prepared to put your socks on. Hello and welcome to another episode of Put Your Socks On. My name is Bobby Julik, and as always, I'm here with Gus Morton. How are you doing today, Gus? Bobby, I'm very well. Hello, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. We have an awesome show today. If you guys were privileged enough to watch a little bit of it, it was fast as hell out there. Team Sun Trial, one of the more rare disciplines in, uh, in the pro cycling. So it was nice to see it on display. The Tour de France, man, it's, it's all time. Today's stage, before we uh, get into the the minutia, let's talk top line details. Uh, I was in Brussels again, did a little loop from the Palais Royal to the Atomium, which was uh, a rather beautiful building. If you uh, if you have a moment, take a second to Google it. 26, 27.6 Ks, uh, fast stage. Uh, Brussels, it's part of Flanders, but they speak French, not Flemish. Um, yeah, it was a flat stage. Merckx was there. Apparently Merckx was actually blessed by the Pope uh, during one of his visits to Brussels in the 90s. So there you go, Eddie Merckx, a true superstar. Jean-Claude Van Damme, the muscles from Brussels as well. So another piece of, uh, another piece of trivia there for you guys. Um, before we move on, Bobby, I believe you've got a message from our sponsor. Yeah, but before we move into that, I need a little bit more information about your experience in Belgium. So, okay, chocolate, beer, or fritz? What, how would you rate, rate those as the things that you actually eat or look forward to when you visit Belgium? Oh, dude, good question. Um, <laughs> I'm going to be, this is real talk right now. I don't like Belgian beer that much. Oh. Just going to say it. I knew it's sacrilegious, right? Like people get fired up and I'm like, yeah, I could take it or leave it. Um, okay. So yeah, I'm going to go with Fritz. Fritz. Okay. What about okay. you? No, I'm a, I'm a Belgian beer sort of guy. So I would go beer, Fritz, and then chocolate is my, my final one. But uh, those are a three must, must consume when you're in Belgium. Um, Did you race much in Belgium? You know, not so much. Um, you know, our service course was based up there when I was with Motorola. Got to go out to dinner with Eddie Merckx and his family really? back, I think, the first year, like 1995. Yeah, I, and I hate to admit this, but I got into cycling so late, I didn't really know who Eddie Merckx was. Of yeah. course, I heard the name and heard the legend, but like I didn't have that real fanboy sort of mentality around him. But he is the most coolest calmest guy right in the middle of a restaurant you know obviously he's a superstar and yeah. people would come up to him and ask for you know an autograph because back then we didn't have you know cell phone cameras as, as at all and yeah. he was just so nice to everybody i was really impressed with that but yeah it was uh, brussels is an amazing town have you ever actually been to the atonium no no i haven't actually 
I, don't, I, don't I, don't, I can't even remember if I've been to Brussels or not. Oh, yeah. If you can't remember, that means you haven't been there because it's, <laughs> it's pre- pretty freaking awesome. Yeah. But yeah, that Atonium thing actually was made for the 1958 World's Fair. And obviously, it's a Adams sort of look to it, right? So yeah. yeah, I just wanted to look at it a little bit more in detail and saw that it was nine atoms in a unit cell of an iron crystal magnified 165 <laughs> billion times. Professor Bobby Jurek. Man, he's been, you've been doing your research, Bobby. <laughs> no, it's one of those things that you look at, but I, I, it took until today for me to actually find out exactly what it was. But can you imagine? Yeah. So, so I guess all those little bulbs, you can like walk in there and those little side panels are ways to access them. And there's evidently this beautiful restaurant on the top with a panoramic view of Brussels. So next year or in the future, when we're live, we definitely have to do our podcast from that panoramic um, restaurant up on top of the Otonium. That would be fun. 100%, 100%. Shall we get into today's, today's stage? But before that, Bobby, as I said, you've got a little information from our sponsor. Yeah, Road Idea is our sponsor this year. They're doing this really great trivia uh, quiz question sort of thing. So for today's daily dose of your Road ID tour trivia, to play, head over to roadid.com slash TDF. And today's question is, what was the nickname of the first Tour de France champion, Maurice Guerin? Do you have any idea there? No. No. Yeah. I, I, uh, I'm glad we Do have you? the answer. I, I'm, no, I'm glad we have the answer sheet. Yeah, go to roadid slash, roadid.com slash Tour de France to answer this question and score a chance to win today's prize, which is a tax bike train. I mean, there's some real prizes at this in this competition, isn't there, Gus? We got some yeah, good stuff le- here. That's a that's a legit hookup there. Not only do you have to remember to put your socks on tomorrow, but you rem- you have to remember to get your daily dose, the road ID competition. Get over there, get the trivia, and get yourself the trainer, Bobby. Today's stage, fill me in. Well, today's stage isn't just the actual stage itself; it's the full day right? Like guys are getting out there. They had the course open for about an hour. So everyone was out there reconning it. It's a very stressful day for only 27.6 kilometers. There's no doubt about that. And on the map, it looked like it was really tricky to get from the, the uh, Palais Royale over to the Otonium and then back to the Palais Royale. So it was a pretty stressful day for everyone. Um, the course was pretty straightforward. A little bit of rolling up and down, you know, a couple turns here and there until you got into the final, which I always found pretty tricky. You know, you got these guys absolutely on their limit and all of a sudden you throw a couple chicanes at them like right at the end. It it was a recipe for disaster. I only saw one crash, but I was actually surprised to not see anything, anything more. But yeah. Teams, team Ineos just took it right out of the box, you know, just gripped it and ripped it and said, hey, you know, beat us if you can. And one after another, they were getting close, very, very close, but it took into the last team to go to actually beat them. And I must say they beat them quite handedly. So when you lose a team time trial, um, like we saw that Dakota Quick Step came in less than a second down. I was like, ooh, that's a tough one to take. I've been in that situation 
uh, one time in the Tour de France where we actually lost by one second, but I've also been in team time trials that we've won by less than a second. So I totally, I can't really complain, but I was kind <laughs> of feeling, feeling a little bit knowing that, you know, this is a big event for the equipment sponsors, right? This is a way of yeah, saying, absolutely. Hey, we have the fastest wheels. We have the fastest bikes. We have the fastest skin suits, helmets, et cetera, et cetera. This is really a showcase for the sponsors even more than the team and the riders themselves. Like, as you said, you know, there was quick step, less than a second down. We had Alperson up there. We had Sunweb up there. And, you know, so like it was, it was tight. They're all within a handful of seconds. And then, and then Yumbo Visma just start and we're 14 seconds up. And then I think they were what, like 20 seconds up at the finish. Um, crushed it like two from two outstanding start. And way to, you know, we talked a little bit yesterday about like, you know, setting out your intention at the start of the race. And, and these guys have set their intention out. They're not here to fuck about. They're here to win this race. And, uh, and I mean, yeah, 100% record so far. Bobby, I wanted to ask you a question because I don't think like a lot of people realize this. And it's like the teams go out and recon the stage beforehand. But the logistics of, as you just said, like you've got to, you've got to recon, you've got to eat you've got to get from the finish back to the start. You've got to do your warm up, you know, and that's all like the specific times that you're allowed to, to, to pre-ride the course. Um, what's that like? And what's like a bit of the, can you give like a bit of the, the preparation um, rundown that these riders would probably do prior to the race? Yeah, it's, it's really tricky because you're basically operating from your truck or your bus all day long because normally you don't have a hotel right there on the course. So you're getting up pretty early, you're eating a normal breakfast at the hotel, but then it's, it's game on. You know, you got to get to the start. Everyone's nervous. You know, it is a big day. Um, the, the mechanics and the support actually have to be spot on. They have to make sure that they have all the equipment ready, all the food ready because you're going to be eating in the bus you want to get that fueling schedule down correctly. And sometimes, and this is why I thought that maybe Team Ineos had a little bit of an advantage was, you know, they were able to do the recon, come back to the bus, have a little snack and do a, do a short warm up, and then boom, they were out on the course. But imagine some of those teams that went and did the recon, then had to hang out in their, in their bus for two hours at the start, uh, three hours maybe, and then kind of rewarm up again. It yes, obviously down in between. The, so the logistical person on that day and the directors, the work that the directors and the, the middle management and the coaches have to come up with is, is amazing. So you're just trying to keep the riders as calm as possible. You know you're going to be in a cramped, cramped space. There's going to be many more people in that bus compared to, say, an individual time trial. I mean, at least mm -hmm. at the same time. And that warm-up area is crucial. You want to keep that, you know, you don't want to put up the, the Great Wall of China, but you want to have a little bit of space so the riders can feel that as soon as I step out of the bus, I don't have 10 cameras in my face. So setting up that, what I call the pit, is very, very important. And some of the cool things that have been around for a while and I saw on TV again that are still out there are just those little little tricks in that pit you know obviously you have the turbo trainer you have the coach running the the warm-up schedule all the guys are there warming up on their bikes but then you have those little tricks like the the misting fan you know that lowers the ambient temperature a little bit not just like where it's hitting you with water you have to pour water over your head but it's got a little mister 
that kind of throws water into the fan and then kind of just gives you that nice refreshing little mist. Then you saw the ice baths. Yeah, then you saw the ice baths. And this is all what the coaches and the performance people determine is going to give their riders an advantage moving forward. And yeah, the the warm-up is crucial. There's no doubt about that. But in a team time trial in the Tour de France, there's the bike check that you always have to go through. And instead of just going and checking your bike, you got to leave enough time to check eight people's bikes. Of course, the mechanics went there and pre-checked and then made sure that everything was right. But there's always that kind of extra stand around time, which you wouldn't normally have before an individual time trial. I would and there's always that fear too, right? Because like, you know, it's the Tour de France, as, as we saw, I mean, between second and third, like there's nothing in it. And so you want those bars as long as they can possibly be, you know, you want to make sure that you're as low uh, in the front as you can be or, you know, as far forward in front of the bracket as you can be. So like you're on the edge, it's millimeter perfect, right? And so there's always that fear that the, the UCI's jig uh, doesn't match up to the, to the team's jig. Oh yeah. Don't even get me started on that. UCI jig. <laughs> we, we've seen some pretty ghetto rigs show up at races before and then yes. they say that it's not legal. And then the mechanic who has a lot of experience is like, wait a second, but the ground isn't level. And they're like, Oh, Oh yeah, we have to, we, we, we forgot to do that. Like, so they just put the fear of God in you that you have to cut your bars down by a centimeter. And as soon as they level it out, they're like, Oh no, no, no. Saba. It's, it's good. It's fine. It's fine. So yeah. the, me- the mechanics have a lot of pressure on them. Um, the, the staff do as well. The riders, you know, they have to deal with it in their own way, but they're kind of, you know, a little bit secluded from that sort of stuff because it is the Tour de France. So there's always new equipment coming out. So you got to be a little bit careful with that. You know, obviously you want to test that sort of stuff at training camps and prior to the race, but there's always that one thing that, somebody brings into the tour like, Hey, this is brand new. Let's use this, which is, Oh man, that's, yeah. that's the, the, the red flags go up, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, it works the opposite way to the last stuff before we move on. Um, and, and hear from our super fan, I wanted to just ask you real quick. Cause there was a, like, you know, as is with anything that Ineos does, people believe that there's no such, you know, it's all, all with intent. They were first off today. Um, talk about like, do you want to just quickly touch on like, I mean, they had to sit in the hot seat the entire day, you know, for no cigar. Um, do you reckon they intended to start first? Do you think they kind of purposely sandbagged the, the finish or, or what? No way. No way. You never want to start first. Um, you know, especially when it, when the start order is determined by the first three guys. So like the team GC classification at the stage, there's no way that you could actually plan that there's, you know, 190 guys out there and, you know, you definitely wouldn't want to purposely, be in the back because then you're in jeopardy of taking a gap. So that was just that crash happened. They were all looking after Garrett and Bernal. They knew that they were inside that 3K limit, so they didn't really have to rush to the line. And that's just the way the cookie crumbled for them today. Um, that being said, it is it w- perhaps was a little bit of an advantage to just go out there and just lay down the law and say, "Here we go. This is the this is all we can do." And it was really great to see that the weather conditions stayed exactly the st- same from when they went compared to when, when Jumbo Visma yeah. went. But you know, there's one X factor that you cannot calculate in any sort of pre-race plan. 
And that's the emotion and the motivation, the morale that a team has when they have the yellow jersey on. It is from firsthand experience back in 2001, when I was on Team Credit Agricole, we had Stuart O'Grady in the yellow jersey. And we were a smaller French team compared to the powerhouses of U.S. Postal, ONSE, et cetera, et cetera. And we started last. And from the first time check, we were eight seconds up. Second time check, we were 30 seconds up. Then U.S. Postal, I believe, had a crash. And we wound up winning by, I think, a minute or over a minute. And it was just a phenomenal feeling to look back and see your brother's your buddies, your teammates, and then that guy in the yellow jersey. It just gave you that extra little bit. So those yeah, guys are right. Those guys are riding on a high, that's for sure. But that definitely had a little bit to do with it. So Yeah, they rode out of their skin today. I mean, like you saw um, George Bennett, you know, at the end there, um, I think it was Gronawagen or or maybe someone was talking about how George wasn't really meant to last that long. Um, and then, but he was still there and he was still like pulling really strong turns and they'd kind of planned for him to be gone, but you know, the power of the yellow Jersey. So well done to them. Let's, uh, we got the super fan waiting in the wings. Shall we move on to, uh, to chat to him? Be prepared. It's time for super fan. Hey, we're here. All right, guys. Tunison. I love seeing that man in yellow. What a ride. What a ride by Yumbo Visma. This proves you got to bring your meat sack to the tour if you want to compete uh, early on for that GC. Uh, let's see here. What's my question for Bobby? Bobby, what's it like going into the time trial, team time trial, as a TT specialist? Are you looking to forward to showing off a little bit for your teammates? Uh, is there a little more pressure on you to perform since your weaker teammates are relying you, on you for longer turns? Talk about how the feelings are different from an individual time trial. Put me in the mindset of one of these specialists because it's something most of us regular dudes can't even fathom. Super fan. Good question. Very good question. And everybody listening has to remember one thing about a team time trial. And the first thing that you have to do is check your ego at the door. If you're one of those guys that want to prove to yourself or your teammates or the guys following in the car that you're stronger, you know what? Do that in the last half of the race. But often we see a lot of nervous people out there taking pulls that are way too long, way too strong. So as a specialist, I think that I had a little bit of an advantage because I was less nervous. I knew that I had the physiology that would allow me to perform quite well. And luckily I was always one of the best or one of the best guys in the team time trial. So, yes, it's very important to go in there with a mindset that, hey, I'm not here to prove anything to anybody. I'm here to, you know, take steady pulls. You know, I can increase the length of my pull later in the race when I'm confident that, you know, I maybe have to make up for for one of my teammates or that I'm feeling really good. But that's why the start and the person that takes the start is so critical. And I was paying attention to which team members were taking the start first from their teams today and it was the guys with mega experience and you know garrett thomas winner of the tour de france olympic champion on the track in the team pursuit guess who was the guy that was taking off his team off this off the start ramp it was him who else better to do something like that because you have to get up to speed 
but you also got to make sure that you don't put people in the red right away. And with, with the nerves going on at the start line, that's very, very easy to do. So for me, definitely it's a team event. And obviously it changed a little bit from when we used to have nine people, you had to have five people cross the line. Now that it's eight member teams, there's only four people that have to cross the line, but it is a team effort. It is not an individual effort. And I've seen teams blow up sky high because there's that one guy that maybe tries to be a little bit too ego in his pulls or his turns uh, throughout the throughout the race. Have you ever been hooped, Bobby? Have you ever been like, I'm on today, like it's my job, I'm the TT specialist, and then you get in there and you're like, oh, this is not good. Have you ever had that experience? <laughs> Luckily not. I'd say um, – like I said, I was always quite proficient at the team time trial, but I do remember the team time trial that was probably the most difficult for me because I was put behind Fabian Conchalara. And Fabian is not only one of the strongest individual time trialists and Olympic champion, but he is so freaking arrow that it's very difficult. Like you're, you're sitting second wheel and you feel like you're already on the front and then he swings off and you feel like you have to do a double pull. That was, so that was tour of Germany in 2008 that I was behind him and I was really like about ready to pull the plug and say, okay, guys come around me. Uh, because it was actually on a descent and I'm like, I can't hold this guy's wheel. Like I'm holding up the team. So I kind of pulled out a line and when I turned around to look, all my teammates were probably another 100 meters, 50 to 100 meters behind us. So I wasn't that bad, but um, riding behind Fabian is a big, big um, ask of, of anyone. And it's just part of the thing that you have to think about when you're looking at the order of the team time trial. Like I was looking at Movistar today. Who the heck would want to be behind Nairo Quintana? There's no draft whatsoever there. And, you know, at least with Fabian, you, you know that he's going to pull strong. But with Nairo, man, that's that's a tough place to be. So how are the how is the order determined ahead of time? I mean, is it based on that, on who sits more aerodynamically? Is it based on who's going to be taking longer poles? I mean, it's got to be different for every team. But what are your thoughts on on how they place everybody? Super fan. Yeah, that that has, size has something to do with it for sure but you really want to look at your rider's strengths and weaknesses. And I always believed in putting in a power line, which is having, say, you have five of your eight guys that are really, really good at time trials or really good at team time trials. I like to put those guys, those five guys together. I like to put those guys together and really develop that power line. And the other two or three guys or four guys regardless of the size of the team, they kind of just came through and pulled off. You know, it may be somebody that you, you just don't really know how they're going to be. But once you hit halfway, you know, things can, you know, that order that you have may be all scattered all over the place because guys could take, uh, a, a, maybe sit on the back for a while and then jump in. But yeah, I think you have to find that aerodynamic um benefit from getting behind putting your power your strong guys together and then also taking into account the fact that there's going to be a few guys that have to take those those shorter quicker pulls but um determining the line 
is great at the start, but could get messed up pretty, pretty quickly if there's something. So you have to be comfortable riding behind whomever. But so, when you don't have brakes because your hands are out on your on your extensions, that, you, that that's a big ask sometimes. Known knowns, known unknowns, unknown unknowns. So, Bobby, let's put together your if you had to go to the Tour de France and just you just built a team to win the team time trial. Who are your eight? Who's your eight power line? Who are your eight guys you take? Obviously, Fabian would be up there. Super fan. Yeah, no, Fabian's too arrow. Fabian but you always want Fabian. Fabian is the best, <laughs> especially before the race. He's exciting. So I would have to go back to, because of course you want to pick teammates that you may have ridden with. Right. So I would go back to the 2001 team. I would say Tor Huschoft, Jens Vogt, Stuart O'Grady, myself. Then I would switch to George Hincapie. And and for sure, Fabian, and also David Zabriskie. Is that eight? I think that's eight. Yeah, I think that's eight. Yeah, and that's a strong so, team. Some that's some more farmers in there. That's a, that's that's a really strong team. That's noticeable absence of my all-time TT favorite Jan Ulrich, but you know that's all right. I guess we could he could just ride it by himself and he'd be fine. <laughs> yeah, I, I've never done a team time trial with, with Jan Ulrich, so I wouldn't know, but I, I imagine he was quite good back in the day as well. I guess this, this leads us all on to, to today's theme, which is aerodynamics and specifically aerodynamics when it comes to the TTT. And I guess like, you know, uh, the super fans questions, really good there, answers Bobby alluded to it. Like aerodynamics are really important, not only like, you know, you, you made the point uh, about um, uh, Cancellara, like he was so aero that to sit behind him is annoying. And then ordering the team and all of that. How's like, I want to sort of hear from you, like how has aerodynamics and the importance of it changed since you, the beginning of your career to now when we're looking at, you know, the shape of the derailleur and stuff like that? Yeah, it, it's gone to a totally different level. I mean, those bikes are missiles now. Uh, the riders are missiles. You're thinking from everything from the skin suit, and I'll try to do this maybe in priority, in my opinion. I think yeah, the skin okay. suit. I think the skin suit is the number one thing that you can really look at and improve, or that has been improved upon. Really? No doubt. Oh man, when, why is that? I, I, well, back in the day, a skin suit was just a long sleeve lycra jersey it wasn't anything special now they've got dimples they've got all sorts of different material that when you look at it under a microscope you can really see the difference it's not flapping in the wind it is absolutely skin tight so yeah go up to your your attic and pull out a skin suit that you had in 1988 like i have compared to one of the skin suits you pull off of uh team ineos or team uh Jumbo Visma, and it'll be a night and day difference, especially on the cost, because those are not cheap. Then you look at the wheels. Like back in the day, I mean, remember guys doing time individual and maybe even team time trials with double discs. Like you never see that anymore. The tires, tires are a massive thing. Uh, Dude, the double discs was sick, by the way. I just want to just just highlight that. Bring back the double disc. That 
that was quite cool, especially <laughs> one of my to fit- that. Holy shit. Yeah, one of my favorite events ever was watching the the team pursued at the junior junior world championships or the Olympics because man, that that just looks so rad. But yeah, a little bit impractical out there on the road, right? <laughs> then then yeah, the helmets have changed. You know, back in the day, guys would do team time trials and time trials without a helmet. Now you have not only a helmet, but the helmet has an integrated visor. And I'd be really interested to see. I was looking at the Bahrain Marita team today. It yep. looked like they had a little kind of a little place for i don't know the radio or maybe a camera on the back of it was it was like a little opaque kind of black hole that yeah i don't know what that is like i thought that might have been like a spot you could attach like more of a like another fin or something okay yeah maybe 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 you're right but yeah fans tell us what is it anyone Everything with the equipment has gone to another level, but let's let's talk about the aerodynamic position of the rider because when when you actually add all these things together, you know the bike, the wheels. The biggest issue that you're creating is your your body. That's what's creating the CDA. That's what's yeah. creating the, the wind resistance. So I do feel that in the past a lot of um, riders, a lot of biomechanics specialists were getting trying to get too aero. So it was really all the Affecting way forward. the rider's power and stuff. Exactly, exactly. So all the way forward, all the way slammed down, totally different position that they, they, than they normally ride in. And over the years, working with different biomechanical specialists, you start to see that aerodynamics is important, but if you can't put the power to the pedals – it's for not. So you go into a wind tunnel, you put a guy in a crazy position and you put him out on the road and he can't hold that position under power for more than 2K without having to stretch his back or his hamstrings are tight or, you know, he's cramping up that you got it. So there is definitely that balance between being arrow and being powerful. And, you know, lower is not always better when it comes to that. I've seen some crazy examples of race especially with bigger guys that are you know slammed all the way down and all the way forward extension all the way to the max then you put them up and you bring them back and maybe even shorten their extension and it totally changes their shoulders because remember the shoulders is one of the first things that's that's really creating uh drag right so yeah, if exactly. you could actually roll those shoulders forward instead of having them point out, you're going to have a lower CDA and thus go faster. But and, and tell me how like all of this. So like this is like you know this is all just the individual, right? And then so you've got to think about that today. Like that's times by eight. But then now it's also too like how those eight guys work together. So then it becomes like how long are they spending on the front? Like you know. What's the, so like, how's that then change again? Do they, you know, I, I remember hearing stories of um, riders changing their seating position, seat height and stuff for a team's time trial in order to like create a better draft for the rider that was behind them. Or So does that change as well? Like do they, do they approach a TTT completely differently again? Well, I think with t- in today's age, you can really geek out in the wind tunnel. You know, back mm. in the day, it was one person in the wind tunnel. Now you can put in an entire team in the wind tunnel and you can stay there for days playing with different little options and changes and, and whatnot. But 
I really feel there's a better way to utilize your time than do something like that. Like get the riders comfortable on their bikes, have them train in that position on that bike under, under some sort of pressure. I always tell my riders and, and I always kind of had it in the back of my head as well. Maybe it was coming from America where we did do a lot of time trials was even if you're a hundredth place in GC, 45 minutes behind the lead, you have an opportunity to test your equipment, your position and your condition out there on the road. So take it as if you were going for the yellow Jersey, because one day you will be in that position where you have to defend a yellow Jersey or maybe overtake the person that's leading so that you can win the, win the race. And if you haven't done that work, if you haven't done that testing, if you haven't gotten your kind of protocol down pat, you're going to show up that day and you're going to be noticeably more nervous. And that's a big part of time trials and a huge part of team time trials is just your mental state that day. Because let's face it, team time trials, these guys, it's, it's like riding in an echelon. So like these guys do it every single day, but like you throw a little pressure in there and a couple of questions like, Oh, is my seat height too high? Or am I sitting too far back or too far forward? Those are things that you don't need to be thinking about when you're going 60 to 65 K an hour behind seven guys going for a, a stage win in the tour like today. Good advice. And I reckon that's something you can kind of take across the entire board, right? Is like, get the practicing where you can, because one day you'll find yourself in that position where you're about to win something. And if you're not ready for it, like you're not comfortable, then you might lose it. Before we move on, before we get onto tomorrow's stage, Bobby, what's your favorite piece of aero equipment throughout the ages? Oh, that's an easy one. The thing that changed everything for everyone is the aero bar. You know, it was always cool to have a disc wheel. It was always cool to have maybe that Giro styrofoam helmet that Greg LeMond wore in the tour in 1988, no, 89, when he beat uh, Fignon. But man, once you got that pair of aero bars, that that changed everything. So for me, for sure, the aero bars, and especially now, you know, you got them, you know, 3D laser printed. You got the, the arm pads sculpted to your forearms, your personal forearms. So now I love to sit in a cockpit of one of those bikes that have been made for me. It'd be phenomenal. Dude, I'm, I'm, you can, you can have your laser 3d printing. I'm all about that homemade shit. And for me, it's Grammar Bree, the washing machine bike. That's my favorite piece of aero equipment. That shit was ridiculous and crazy aero. Like, actually, it was. Like, your CDA is insane on that thing. Oh, with the Superman position you're talking about. No, not even the Superman. That one where he, like, lay on the handlebars. Oh, Superman's not that much more aero. Um, At least his Superman. But the the him where he, like, laid on the handlebars, that position, I don't even know what you call that. That shit was aero. Didn't they call that the egg position or something like that? Yeah, Yeah. man. And then... um, I heard a story, and maybe the, the listeners can help us. I heard with the whole thing about, oh, he built this bike out of washing machine parts. I mm. heard that it was actually just one washing machine, like spacer or like one tiny piece that he actually 
yeah. you know, stole from a washing machine. It wasn't like he made this bike <laughs> out of out of a washing machine. But it, I used to think like, oh my gosh, this guy made a bike out of a washing machine. He's a Same genius. here. I was like, how the fuck did he make the tubes? I was like, where are those tubes in my washing machine? <laughs> you got all these kids like breaking apart their parents' <laughs> washing machine, trying to make a, a, a totally aero bike out of it. And then they just come out totally disappointed. But Yeah, it was like the ball yeah. bearings or something. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I heard that as well. I was a bit disappointed because I was like, man, where in the fuck did he get those tubes from? But uh, anyway, with that, I reckon we've covered it. Let's move on to tomorrow's stage. It's another long one. Um, Bobby, talk me through it. It's, it's going to be a doozy. There's no doubt about it. Um, 215 kilometers, starting Beach and going to Esperé. So you're actually starting in Belgium and going to France. I think it's going to be you know, pretty, pretty fast start because, you know, after a team time trial, you know, you're not spending five or six hours on your bike. So you're going to have guys pretty motivated to get into the breakaway, but there is a major sting at the end of this puppy. There's some major sting at the tail of this, this, this stage. So taking into account, you know, you always have to think about the sprints nowadays, right? Like that one sprint, which is at 102 K. So I I believe it's going to be a fast start. I don't think the first break will go right away. I think mm-hmm. it'll take a while, but one will be established. We'll see how many guys get off because I do think that, you know, that that competition for the green jersey, it's not like you just want to give those points away if, if, and let, you know, 15 guys go up the road. But it's definitely going to light up there at the end because you have a Cat 4 at 173K, a Cat 3 at 185.5, another cat three at 190 and then yet another cat three at 199. So it looks like it's a little bit of an uphill finish as well, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. So So there's some snacks there at the end. Yes. Plenty of snacks, plenty of snacks. Um, But it's also going to make it for a very, very stressful finale. When, when the tour comes back into France, you know it's going to be a lot of people on the road. You know the French riders are going to be uber-motivated. And what, what happens with stress? Crashes. So in these situations, those teams that are protecting their GC leader are going to have a very stressful end of that, of that race. That last 20K, last 30K, last 40K, it's going to just start ratcheting up getting more and more dangerous we're going to be seeing more and more guys on the side of the road hopefully hopefully not but yeah it's you know 4k neutral and then it's going to be balls balls to the wall from the start and then you know hopefully it'll settle down but i i expect some big big fireworks there at the end and it's all going to depend on on positioning how strong your team is it there is a right hand turn like I studied the finish a little bit and there's a right-hand turn with about, uh, yeah, 400 meters to go. And then another left-hand turn with just over 250 meters to go. So the run into the finish from 4K to 2K is pretty downhill. Then you have about a K and a half-ish of flat roads. And then there's 500 meters slight uphill. So with that slight uphill, after the descent with those two kind of tricky turns that are going to definitely file things out. I think I'm, I'm picking Caleb Ewan tomorrow. He had the legs to win yesterday. He just picked the wrong line, got boxed in, almost was able to step out and still come around those guys. But yeah, when you scrub off even 2k an hour going uphill against Sagan and Tunis and your, your toast, but tomorrow Caleb Ewan's my man. What do you think? 
That's a good pick, actually. Um, I forgot about him. Yeah, I've, I picked Walt Vanner. Um, I think, you know, he won that say won a couple of stages at the Dauphiné. Um, it's, there's a, you know, it's a hilly finish. It's going to be hard. It's long. Um, yeah, so I'm going with Vanner for this one. That's not a bad the way they're the way they're going. I wouldn't rule yeah. against them. And in France, you always say jamais deux sans trois, which means never two without three. So yeah, that's go. a pretty that's a pretty solid pick you got there, Gus. And never two without three. We'll be back tomorrow with our third episode. Uh, that about wraps it up, I reckon. Thank you very much, everybody, for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe to PYSO, put your socks on, on SoundCloud. Follow us on Twitter. Yeah, thank you very much, guys. Uh, Until tomorrow, Bobby. Thanks, everyone, for listening. See See you tomorrow. Inspired by the fabled jerseys of the Tour, Road ID has rolled out a limited edition Tour de France wrist ID. Unlike any other IDs in their lineup, This incredibly sexy ID comes with four interchangeable bands, yellow, polka dot, green, and white. This is a $50 value available in limited quantities for only $34.99. Head on over to roadid.com slash TDF to get yours before they run out. Put your socks on.